Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas committed the crime, did the time, and now they're back on the streets. And Paul Newman mentors Tom Cruise at the Art of Hustling Pool. Coming up next on Out of Touchstone. Sweet Sounds of Robert Palmer. Um, when we decided to do this show, I thought it would be fun to pick a song from the movies that are being discussed on the episode. And this one, this episode has no shortage of good choices. Uh, we had Tough Enough by the Fabulous Thunderbirds, Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. Both movies had theme songs, but this time I decided to enact my executive privilege to include that song. It's My Baby's in Love with Another Guy, which is a uh, cover of a song from the 60s by an artist named Little Willie John, and that's Robert Palmer. I was a big fan. My father was a big fan, and I was really devastated when he passed away. Very young. He died right before I moved to Los Angeles and never got a chance to see him live. Um, But Chad Smart, my co-host sitting across the table from me, are you familiar with Robert Palmer? I was addicted to his videos back in the 80s. Okay. I just, I feel like, I just ah, wish I could have seen more of him. Are you ready to break into a sort of a new phase of Touchstone Pictures almost? Let's do this. Let's, uh, let's finish the year of 1986 off right. And I have nothing else to say. That's, uh, that's my opening line. Well, there was something that I wanted to mention on the last episode and I forgot. And so I'll bring it up now, which is we're starting to see... R-rated films, which is was something that Touchstone kind of alluded to when they first started, but we didn't know exactly how soon it was going to happen. And I have this quote. This is from Ron W. Miller, who, who was the running Disney at the time Touchstone Pictures had started. Of course, he's long since gone and replaced by Jeffrey Katzenberg. But this was a quote that he had when they first announced the creation of Touchstone Pictures. He said, quote, We will never intentionally set out to make an R-rated motion picture. Of course, we don't determine the ratings of our pictures. It's done by an independent board. However, it is conceivable that some future Touchstone films might warrant such a rating. Our decision on potential R content will be governed by the appropriateness of such content to the plot and storyline and the tastefulness of its presentation. The use of such elements in a Touchstone film must be fully integrated into and flow meaningfully from the basic plot structure rather than be exploitive in nature. And so we saw with Down and Out in Beverly Hills and Ruthless People, we had two of the three movies of the first part of 1986 were R-rated. We've got an R-rated movie coming up here now. But the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, too, is when Disney launched, we mentioned it in the first episode, when Disney created Touchstone Pictures, part of it was trying to appeal to younger audiences to show, like, oh, you know, we're not just the, for your younger brother or whatnot. But yet, the last two movies of 1986 that we're about to discuss feature older leading men that I don't necessarily know would have appealed to younger audiences unless they were trying to show, Hey, look, these guys are still hip. It is interesting to see where touchstone is going at this point. And 
the first movie that we're going to get into, it's a bit of a throwback, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, as you will discuss here momentarily, taking these actors and showing that they're still viable. Because let's be honest, Hollywood does kind of have an ageist stigma of... no. Are you telling me? (laughs) I got to work it in early in this episode. Okay. Hollywood does have an issue of when an actor gets to a certain age, they are no longer viable, they say. You know, they think to market a film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Granted, with actors, it's a much higher age than for an actress. And I think, especially in the 80s, it wasn't as bad as it probably is today when everything seems to be geared more towards a... A younger audience, because as we've discussed, the 80s had more variety in time. But yes, this movie, um, I mean, should we just get into the film and actually talk about the title instead of beating around the bush? No, go ahead. After 30 years in prison, Archie Long and Harry Doyle are going straight. Straight back to what they do best. Like robbing and stealing. I can't believe you guys stole an armored truck. Did you get her on the train? We're running to Mexico. Tracks don't go to Mexico. Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas. He ain't changed. Best things never do. Tough guys. The action comedy of the fall. Braden Peach starts Friday at a theater near you. Check your local newspaper. And I would say, from my perspective, as a uh, 12, year, 12, 13-year-old, when this came out in in uh, the theater and then in the video store, I remember the video case quite a bit. Never saw the movie because I didn't know who Burt Lancaster was. I didn't know who Kirk Douglas was. Mm-hmm. We, knew Kirk, we knew who Kirk Douglas' uh, son was. No, I probably didn't put really? two and two together okay. at the time. But okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I mentioned it before, but my parents were kind of movie buffs. And so we, if they were flipping channels and a movie came on, they would they would say, oh, that's Kirk Douglas. And then kind of go into a backstory and, oh, he was Spartacus or he did this. Yeah. Yeah. See, my parents didn't. I mean, they would watch movies if they were on TV and they just happened to be flipping through the channels. But there were no there was no historical context to a film. It was just this is on TV. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, it was released on October 3rd of 1986. And um, the director, we, we found the director is Jeff Kenu, And he was coming off of two, I wouldn't say, well, one of them was a big hit. The other one was probably a smaller one. The, the, he did Revenge of the Nerds mm-hmm. in 1984, which was obviously it's a huge box office hit as, about, as far as I imagine. And then 1985, he did a movie called Gotcha, which I remember as a kid, Anthony Edwards, and you said, was it Linda, Linda Fiorentino, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I vaguely remember that, but I don't remember ever seeing it. I remember watching it as a kid. I've not seen it probably in 30 years. And as I told you off mic that we, I tried watching it the other, a couple of days prior to recording this podcast. I wanted, mm-hmm. I was like, I've never seen this movie in, in 30. Well, I haven't seen it in 30 years. I want to just see how it holds up. Yeah. I cannot find it anywhere streaming to rent nothing. It's Hmm. um, through all the major channels on the streaming platforms. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I vaguely remember it, but at the same time, while we said, well, we talk about with a movie like tough guys is you've got these two legendary movie stars and, you know, we were mentioning how by the time the 80s roll around, you've got this lot more movies are coming out, right? There's more The Rise of Home Video. And you have these movie stars from the 40s and 50s that have, are they still around and whatnot. And so what I thought was really funny is what prompted the whole movie, which is such a great story, is that the two screenwriters, which were James Orr and Jim Crookshank, 
as they tell the story, they were watching the 1985 Academy Awards. And there was a scene, well, there was a section where Michael Douglas comes out and he introduces Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. And in doing so, they show a clip from the 1958 Oscars where Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster do this really funny song and dance because neither one of them had been got nominated for best actor. And so they go through the other five best actors and they're calling them out on the stage. Mm-hmm. And they're, the song is them singing, it's great not to be nominated. And they sort of joke about it. And so in the, the 1985 Oscars, they show a clip of that and then they come out. And of course, it, I guess it went over really well. And the screenwriters saw that and said, you know, well, let's write a movie for those two guys. But what was funny was at that 1985 Oscar show, Michael Douglas introduces them so that they can present the awards for screenplay, for best original screenplay and best adapted screenplay, which gives Burt Lancaster a chance to reference a Touchstone movie when he's listing the nominees. Splash! Screenplay by Lowell Gantz, Babalu Mandel, and Bruce J. Friedman. Screen story by Bruce J. Friedman, based on a story by Brian Grazer. And as I said, the screenwriters basically wrote it just for the two of them. They, uh, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, both deferred their salaries and became part owners on the film. And they also did all of their own stunts, which, I mean, I, I knew Kirk Douglas was kind of known mm-hmm. for doing that, but I wasn't overly familiar with Burt Lancaster as a, I mean, he's big rugged. I mean, he played, I believe he played Jim Thorpe in a movie, so I mean, he's an athlete. But as far as doing your own stunts, you know, the um, the opening credits, you know, it more or less plays as a lifetime achievement montage. Mm-hmm. It, it, like it, it this makes no I mean, it's a lot of really badly photoshopped <laughs> pictures of them trying to looking like looking to, like posting together and whatnot. But um, at, the, at the same time, they do. I think that they did a really interesting job of using newspapers, newspaper headlines to like do the exposition mm-hmm. and show the backstory of these characters as the theme song plays over the credits. It was something different. We haven't seen that in a Touchstone movie. Usually the credits, they just kind of get into the movie. Well, when you're setting up 30 years of backstory, it's an easy way to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I found it interesting in doing the research for this, It talking about why they took the film as well. You know, not just from the screenwriter perspective of, hey, here are two Hollywood legends. Let's put them together. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas were looking for material to really, you know, give them that past glory, I guess you could say. Okay. And it, it's an interesting comment here by Burt Lancaster um, talking about the change in the Hollywood system from his early days. Because he was talking about when he was making a movie called Mr. 880 at Fox. Oh, you know, don't know I've that. never heard of this one. But he says, Everyday Daryl Zanuck, who was the head of Fox at the time, Sent, sent down a memo about the previous day's rushes, and it contained the most brilliant analysis of what was wrong and what was right about what we had done. I don't think there was anyone at the studio today who could perform that function. They just aren't willing to take chances on films of substance. Oh, okay. And I think looking at the Touchstone films that you know we're discussing in this era, I, I think there's a variety. And sure. I, think, I don't know if there's necessarily a... a uh, you know, a chance on a film of substance. Cause I mean, again, this is the eighties. It's not like everything's going to be high brow or, yeah. or low brow. Everything's kind of hitting in the middle as opposed to today where everything is franchise and sequel and, well, you know, yeah. in that case, but yeah, it's just interesting that 
he's, you know, Lancaster was coming from when the studio was the studio and, and not a corporation like it would turn into. Well, yeah. And then it's, it's, I think it's kind of the parallels between those two actors, their real life careers. And then also with this movie, because the whole point of the movie is these two guys adjusting to modern life after having been in prison for 30 years you know there's a there's a scene in the beginning where they're having an interview with their parole officer and it just shows that it looks like they're going to have some struggles Mm -hmm. as it goes on archie i've got a job placement for you you got a job already now it doesn't pay a lot but it's going to get you started and here's a voucher for one of the welfare hotels in the area welfare well it's just it's just till you get working start drawing an income Harry, you have a very nice room at the Golden Sunset Retirement Home. Retirement? Yeah, and uh, as soon as you sign that, $435 a month in Social Security. But I want to work, too. I've got strong hands, a strong back. Uh, I'm sorry, Harry, but that's just not possible. You see, uh, after 70, retirement is mandatory. Ronald Reagan's older than him, and he's got a job. That, that's true, that's true, but... Um, I want to be useful, productive. I can't sit around no retirement home. Well, think of it this way, Harry. You're going to have time to just relax and enjoy life. Give it a chance, okay? All right, Richie, if you say so. But what I also found interesting was, we joked about it before, but if you're going to go into prison in the 50s, and be in jail for 30 years and come out in the mid-1980s. Mm-hmm. Is that the biggest culture shock you'll likely see, in the, especially even the 20th century? Mm-hmm. But even now, I just think that's got to be so alien to someone like that. Yeah, sitting here, I could say, you know, maybe if you go 1920s to 1950s, might be culture change as well because... Television uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, but yes, the, the change in society, in technology between the 50s and you know it's it, i mean it kind of is what pleasantville was in reverse right you had the oh, 80s yeah. and you wanted to go back to the 50s so Pretty back to the future i guess yeah. in that regards right you know and what was funny was i couldn't help but notice that from a costume standpoint like the the suits that they wear they're in mm-hmm. prison they come out of prison with these suits on they wear them for the majority of the film and they're just the standard pinstripe black mm-hmm. suits that are more or less timeless and then when you see, there's a, a, a very, I thought it was kind of a funny scene where Kirk Douglas is, goes to a clothing yeah. store and he's trying all these different outfits. And you see like 80s clothing being such a time capsule. And it's funny because I don't think, I don't remember ever dressing like that in the 80s. I think that movies sometimes have a, a, a tendency to exaggerate these things. But We discussed it before where both you and I did not grow up in Los Angeles mm-hmm. or a big city. So... For me, what the 80s that I see in the movies seems like an exaggeration. It seems like somebody who saw somebody's yearbook from the 80s and now is making a movie today and being like, oh, this is what everybody was like in the 80s. You know, it's like almost like a mockumentary or a a parody of that time. But for some reason, and it's in multiple 80s movies, you know, because we saw it in Down and Out in Beverly Hills with the son and his friends. It's mm-hmm. for somehow some reason this was a look that I guess was popular in L.A. at the time, but not. It didn't hit the Midwest. Well, and Ruth, this people, right? She's a uh, clothing designer, yeah. and so some of the outfits that that Helen Slater designs for Bette Midler are just, I think, outlandish. I can't <laughs> imagine anybody wearing them, but mm-hmm. it does kind of, like I said, gives it kind of a time capsule feel. Um, I also thought, you know. 
the, the, the I've mentioned it in some of our previous movies, but this, these odd attempts at humor, and I think it was an offbeat, you know, it's, I don't know, it seems like, I'm not going to try to judge movies from the 80s by the current standards. I think you and I have talked about that before. Um, just the way that, like, gay people are, are, are depicted in these mm-hmm. movies, it's, it's, like, very comedic just because they're gay, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of odd attempts at, at you know, there's this scene where the... Um, the, the the bar that they used to hang out into has become a gay bar. And, I mean, I could imagine a Kirk Douglas character probably would be horrified by that. But there's also, there's a scene at the gym that was really bizarre where, I mean, it's funny, Kirk Douglas is trying to impress the the younger woman mm-hmm. and he's, you know, showing off all of his athleticism. But then when he's, they're talking to, and, and he's, and she's come, kind of coming on to him more or less. And he says, well, you know, what would you see in a guy like me? And, he's, and she just says, oh, you know, you're a real man. All we have are gay guys at this gym. And I was, kind of, I was like, uh, okay, maybe in 1986 or probably we were laughing at that joke. But Well, I think the follow-up there, it, I can see, okay, let's put it into current day L.A. Where if she's working in a West Hollywood gym and Kirk Douglas comes in, you might say, oh, you know, we have... But, sure. it, but also then the follow up in that scene is she's like, oh, you're not you're not gay. Are you? And he's like, well, yeah, I'm gay. I'm happy to be out here. But, and so it's that. Sure. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an easy joke. Fruit, right? yeah. 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 And I don't I, I don't know when gay stopped being used as happy yeah. as a vernacular. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Kirk Douglas would have said it that way. But exactly. I, I could just see the screenwriters just yeah. licking their chops when yeah. they got an opportunity to make that joke, you know. But and also, you know, as we were going to talking about that scene anyway, I couldn't help but notice, like, why is this woman coming on to him? And I, I was joking because uh, I watched the movie with my wife, like I do all of them. And she just kind of rolled her eyes at that scene because I... I looked up the age of the the age of the actress. She would have been, I think, in her early thirties. Darlene Flugel was her name, and she was, I think, thirty one when she made it. And then uh, Kirk Douglas was pushing seventy. My wife is in her mid thirties, and she was thinking, like, why why would she be coming on? To, of course, what was it like a week after we saw the movie? The news came out about Dennis Quaid, mm-hmm. which is about the same age difference between him and his new uh, fiance. But but did you? I mean, did you think that you said that was funny? Right? You enjoyed that part, or? I don't know if I'd say it's funny, but you you would ask me, you know, could you did you believe this? Could you see? It? And I'm like, yeah, because Kirk Douglas is still, you know, he's in good shape. Okay. So it's, he's not like saggy old, you know. You see him lifting weights in the gym yeah, at the beginning it's, of the it's movie, like right? Anna yeah. Nicole Smith and you know the billionaire <laughs> husband that she had. Yeah. Said, well, but then you mentioned, you know, you said, oh, you know, could you see this happening today? And my first thought was. Uh, how old is Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones? Oh, yeah. I think so, there's, a, there's probably close to 20-year yeah. difference there, And then right? you look, you know, just a day or two before recording this, uh, Richard Gere came out and announced that he's expecting a new kid, new child with his wife, who's, I think, in her <sighs> 20s, and he's pushing 70. So Yeah. But I also think that 70-year-old, 70-year-old men today. now look a little bit different. I mean, Kirk Douglas was the exception yeah. to the rule, I think, right? You know, they, they're aging a little bit yeah. different. Because you look at the way they're presented in this movie – you know, they even say it on at, at one scene where they say that Kirk Douglas's character is sixty-seven and Burt Lancaster seventy-two. So that's why Burt Lancaster has to go into a nursing home because he's too young, too old to work. But I don't know what it is about it. But when I watch this movie, I'm like, they make him look like they're eighty. Mm. You know, whereas it seems like the seventy-year-old men that we see nowadays, like Michael Douglas, I think is seventy-five, and he doesn't look—he looks so much younger mm. than those two guys did in that movie. Yeah. Also, the examples we've used for older younger 
we're talking about celebrities, which yes. I think all normal rules go out the window when you know, fame comes into play. That's very true. And we're talking about, like I said, these are these are huge movie stars. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that they also brought some older actors with them to to fill out the supporting cast. Uh, Eli, Eli Wallach plays the the hitman that's mm. that's coming after them. I don't know. I thought he was a little—he's a little cartoonish. He's the one that actually gets to make the Disney references. Where are we going? Disneyland. Out, out. Who the hell are you anyway? I'm Peter Pan. I come to take you to Never Neverland, okay? But you won't be coming back. But he's a little too silly, and I, I think this might go back to what we were saying about trying to make a movie with older stars, but make it appeal to younger audiences. It's something—it's something you'd see in the Saturday morning cartoon. I did like. The whole subplot of the he was hired before they went into prison in the 50s, <laughs> and now he's still going to do the job for the guy who I think has died. Like, the guy yeah. that hired him is dead, so it doesn't really matter. But he's like, no, I took this job. I'm going to see it to completion. Yeah, and, I mean, he, and Eli Wallach is great. We, we love him. It was just, I don't know. And then Charles Durning, who plays the 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 cop who's mm. who who was a cop back in the day when they went into jail and now he's just like a clerk or he's been bumped down mm. and I that character didn't need to be there you could have had anybody and he's just sort of there to be an extra antagonist maybe yeah. like they didn't really have because at this point the antagonist of the film is just time mm. right there's it's it, them trying to adjust to life and so they give him an extra person to kind of nag them that's one thing I think we can see as a running theme through all of the Touchstone films is maybe one more rewrite would have worked take this character out put in a different protagonist yeah. but yeah and it just and i think to, well what i didn't like was with the charles Durning character especially was that it was just it adds to that element of the old people well old people still got it that's for lack of a better word i'll just say that that was the thing that i thought for the whole movie is that it was like hey look kids the old people still got it and the young people don't and so charlie charles Durning's character he's only there to basically be Oh, I was right the whole mm-hmm. time, and you young cops, you didn't trust me. You were yeah. wrong the whole time. And that's, that was my biggest problem with the movie is that it's literally just a one-joke movie. It, it's just the same joke over and over again. They're old, and they can't get used to it. And they, you know, there was some very heavy-handed, like, obvious jokes coming a mile away. Like, there's a scene with Burt Lancaster standing on the grass looking at, the, <laughs> looking at a bird, and then a cop comes in and just, you know, get, get off the grass. And you're like, what's going to happen? That cop's standing right underneath that mm. bird. Oh, I wonder if the bird's going to poop. Oh, yes, yeah. it just did. I had a different takeaway from the film than you did. I, I like this film, and I like the, uh, the differences between the two characters of once they got out, Burt Lancaster goes back to his, kind of picks up his life from 1955, whereas Kirk Douglas tries to fit in with the 80s with the young girl going out, you know, getting the clothes, going to the, the nightclub. I'll give you that for sure. I didn't like how they got to where they got at the end with, with the train robbery. Yeah. Because it just seemed like this is where they're heading. But it's I was expecting once they got out of jail, having not seen this movie before, that once they got out, they were going to go right back into, okay, let's plan that next heist. You know, we didn't get to do this caper before we went in. Now's our chance. But it yeah. really became like, we have nothing else to do. So let's do it. So. Yeah, it just it, it, like you said, it needs more plot. Yeah, you know. And, I, and my wife actually pointed out her her big question was they never revealed how they got caught. Mm. Like that might have been kind of a good plot point so that they could see, oh, let's not let's kind of learn from our mistakes and yeah. see, you know. But I also thought there was there was so many random plot holes that you know just like like they steal an armored car mm. and yet they know where's a good place to hide out like they've yeah. been in jail for 30 years how are they going to know where to hide this thing yeah. it was little things like that that i think keep it from being 
it's a it's a decent movie, but it could have been good Better. or great. You know, it just there was no there's no real ending, right? They just steal the train, and then they don't. It's like they didn't really know how to how, what they were going to do with it, right? I don't That's know. well, that pretty much sums up the Variety review from 1986, where it says it's all silly, meaningless, and vaguely depressing. Since the awareness lingers throughout that both actors are capable of much much more than is demanded of them here. Yeah. I think that was yeah, and I my and I think the issue that I had was that it, it really could have been a greater statement about older people adjusting to to the especially the the wildness of the eighties, mm. but it was just a little too silly, and even and even worse, it's I couldn't get over the fact that like every young person in the movie is just incredibly mean, like they're just it's it, it kind of driving home that point. Like, I think we talked about it with was it was country maybe where we were saying how like sometimes the filmmakers. Mm. They have this notion of like, okay, we want to show farmers struggling, so let's just show like a tornado hits them. And with tough guys, it's like, okay, these guys are going to have a tough time adjusting to modern life. Let's make everybody just really rude, as if they don't, you know, no one has their manners like they did back in the fifties. Yeah. Well, once we get done recording, I will uh, introduce you to social media. And <laughs> well, yeah. And then the other, the other thing, the last thing I had on the movie was um, I couldn't help but notice that. This movie's been told many times, especially with the idea of, an, of a, somebody doing their time in jail and coming out and then and trying to readapt. But almost every time it's done, it's done as a drama. And virtually every time it's done, it doesn't have a happy ending. And so I'm wondering, like, if you were going to try to make this movie today, could you still do it as a comedy? Like, I mean, I guess maybe you could. I was trying to think of this, this concept because... Spoiler for everyone listening, Mike and I do talk about the show, actually, in advance and kind of go over, you know, some of the little bits that we're going to toss out. So we're not stuck here stammering, even though that's what I'm kind of doing right right now. And my thought of trying to figure out, uh, you know, actors from the 80s that you could transplant to today and do this movie. And I thought, what if you did a sequel to Spies Like Us, where the Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd character, even though they helped save the day at the end of the movie, good thrown in prison for, you know, whatever espionage under trumped up, uh, spy laws and then come out in 2015 and, you know, dealing with the new Russia, I guess. I mean, you could actually might work. And Edward Snowden and, uh, the Patriot act and all that stuff. I mean, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean, I guess I don't know how bank. If you had the same character, if you still had Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, that would yeah. be kind of could be clever, you know. But that was one of the things. Uh, Chad and I, as Chad mentioned, we 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 have lunch all the time, so we get to pitch ideas. And I, the, the idea that I proposed to him was, if you could make this movie today, you know, well, number one, would the culture shock be as great if you had somebody who went in jail in the '80s and mm-hmm. then came out in the 2010s? I don't know, other than maybe a smartphone or technology. I'm sure there would be lots of bad jokes about not understanding how a phone works or yeah maybe they could maybe they go to the movies and then just completely have a heart attack when they see how much it costs (laughs) to see a movie um but the but the challenge that i had for chad was i said when tough guys came out we said kirk douglas was 69 and burt lancaster was 72 so i said find me two actors between the ages of 65 and 75 who were prominent in the early part of the 80s and that are now in the, the 2010s. And if you could make this movie as a comedy, how would you make it? So, Chad, do you have two actors? I'm going back to my Spies Like Us. Spies That's like my, us. the only thing I could think of. Yeah, because I was trying to think. Because I, I didn't want to go with, I think, 
the most obvious choices would be Sylvester Stallone, Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. maybe Chuck Norris, throw him in. But they were both in their early seventies, by the way. Stallone and Schwarzenegger. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah, but, but I, I well, yeah. Uh, but I don't think I would want to see that movie. Like I don't. Yeah. I don't think they have the acting chops to be able to do it. Yeah, and so I I came up with a couple, but. Um, if you want to put it in the similar tone of that film where Kirk mm-hmm. Douglas is a little bit more goofy and Burt Lancaster is more stoic. Mm-hmm. So for the younger actor of the two, I have Kurt Russell, who's 68. Mm-hmm. God, Kurt Russell is 68 years old. Um, where I could see him being funny and him trying to try to adapt. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what... If he went into jail of 80s clothing and then tried to go to a clothing store in 2010, would it be any different? I don't, I don't no. think it would be that much different. But for the older, the older character, I had two different people that I would have put in there. One of them was uh, Tom Selleck, who's 74. And you're like, but I mean, how big of a star was he back then? I mean, he could be, be a good – I could see him being that sort of big stoic one. But the other – the obvious one is uh, Tommy Lee Jones, mm. who's 73. So could you imagine this – imagine Tommy Lee Jones and Kurt Russell – playing you know aging stars and then they they've come out of prison and now they have to adjust to the that, social media age i i'm just trying to wrap my head around the fact that tom Selleck is older than older than tommy lee jones so yeah or yeah. you know what you could do because stallone is i think it's like he's in his early, i think he's 73 and kurt russell you could do a sequel to tango and cash <laughs> there you go same thing with Lex <laughs> Spies, okay yeah um okay <sighs> so um I, I always like to talk about what i call the touchstone touch mm-hmm. And for this movie, there's, like, I wouldn't even call it nudity. It's slight nudity. Kurt, uh, uh, Kirk Douglas and the younger woman from the gym, you see her from the side. You see a little bit, not too much. And they kind of make allusions to the fact that all they ever want to do is have sex. I noticed that a lot of these touchstone movies, the characters are just very, very horny. I, I think we saw it in Splash, mm. you know, even down at Beverly Hills, Richard Dreyfus is sleeping with the, with the mm. housekeeper. There's just, it's everybody's, it's so much sexual energy in these movies. And so they, the, the, the Darlene Flugel, her character kind of, Sky, was that her name? Sky. She makes reference to Kirk, Kirk, uh, Kirk Douglas's stamina. And Kirk Douglas calls Burt Lancaster on the, on the phone and was like, oh, I can't, can't keep doing mm. this. He even makes a comment about, you know, she's killing me with, uh, my girlfriend's killing me with sex. But that was pretty much, I mean, Rough life. <laughs> um, as we always do, we do it on a scale of uh, on a scale of one to ten. Chad, where do you come down on tough guys? I would give this probably a six five. Okay, six point five, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I probably not going to watch it again anytime soon. But I'm not opposed to. To another viewing, I would introduce someone to this film who hasn't seen it. Yeah, I think I just I just went with a solid five right down the middle. I mean, I it, I think I like it a little bit more now than I did when I right after I saw it. Um, you know, they're, they're both of them they're, they're terrific leads. They have this commanding on screen presence, but it's a little bit too much ridiculousness to kind of truly enjoy it. Um, I always like to look for trivia in these films, and I I think I mentioned it to you when we watched it or when I I had you watch it. Did you notice the hotel clerk? in the scene where Kirk Douglas checks into the welfare hotel. Which I did not recognize when I watched it, and then you asked me, and I had to look it up. And Well, his name is Ernie Sabella. I recognize him because he played Mr. Carosi in the beach episodes of Saved by the Bell. But you're the one that pointed out that he's also very prominent in another Disney movie. He is the voice of Puma in The Lion King, the animated version. I, I honestly had no idea. Really? Uh, yeah. There is a note in the credits of the film that says, a special thanks to the city of Portland, and I wasn't exactly sure what that was. 
as we found out, the, the train that was used in the film, the Southern Pacific Daylight 4449, was actually borrowed from the city. It's currently on display at the Oregon Rail Heritage Center. We, uh, my wife and I were actually going to Portland around the same time we saw the movie, and so we, we said, we have to look this up. We have to go there. And unfortunately, the, the engineer who, his name is Doyle McCormick, he, pl- he played the engineer in the film. He's the one that actually keeps track of the train and, and, and cleans it up and does all the restoration on it. He was not at the rail center when we were there. So, like, when we were walking in, it's one of those places where there's two customers and seven volunteers. And there's these old train guys just ready to come up and just talk to you about trains. And they said, oh, you know, it's a shame Doyle wasn't here because oh, Doyle could tell you stories about tough guys. And it's like, ah, that's, that's too bad. But what, what they did tell me, one of the, the volunteers mentioned that Disney, Disney asked the city if they could crash the real train for the climax of the film. And the city quickly denied them. <laughs> so they built a full-scale hmm. replica. I don't know if you saw this, Mike. Speaking of crashing, and I'm sure a lawsuit would have happened after if they would have done this. But this movie was actually... A lawsuit took place or was issued. I don't, I don't know how lawsuits get. I've never been subpoenaed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in 1988, uh, an article from Variety on June 29th, 1988's edition uh, reported that writers Edmund Fink and Marie Comfort filed a copyright infringement lawsuit against the movie, claiming that it possessed substantial plot and character similarity t- similarities to their 1981 screenplay, Ridem Cowboy. They asked for $10 million, and, and I have no idea whatever came of that. I'm guessing probably not much. I think those lawsuits happen a lot more than you realize. Yeah. Right? Because it's like... I mean, it's a movie. There's, what, seven plots? You know, seven yeah. storylines. It's... Yeah. And you can't copyright an idea is what I used yeah. to always say. Um, the, the, the actor Adolf Caesar was originally cast to play Leon Little, the Eli Wallach character, but he suffered a heart attack on the set after only one day of filming, and he wound up passing away. The director didn't halt the production on the day that he that, that Adolf Caesar went to the hospital, and he said, quote, we're filmmakers first and people second, unquote. I, I thought that was a little bizarre. Um, this was the last movie that was released by Kirk Douglas's production company, Brenna Productions. They had done several of Kirk's films, including The Final Countdown, which I cannot recommend enough. It's one of my favorite movies when, from when I was a kid. Uh, they also did Something Wicked This Way Comes, the Walt Disney picture mm. from 1983, which was produced by Kirk's son, Peter Douglas. Um, Jim Carrey auditioned for the part of the parole officer, which would wind up going to Dana Carvey. I couldn't help but notice that the movie came out on October 3rd on a Friday. One week later, on the the following Saturday, eight days later, October 11th, Dana Carvey made his SNL debut. Mm. Um, and I guess they've had, he's had a long friendship with Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas uh, was given a, an award. I think it was the AFI. And, and uh, Dana Carvey made an appearance and had a really funny anecdote about the movie. Working with, with Kirk Douglas was, uh, was amazing because of the, the physicality of Kirk Douglas. And the script called for Kirk and I to run along the top of the train. And um, the insurance company wouldn't insure it. And our director, Jeff Canoe, came over and said, would you guys, what do you think? Should we use stunt doubles or, you know? What do, you, what do you think? And I said, well, the train will be moving and we'll be unrestrained. I think stunt doubles would be a good thing. And I was starting to feel like I was going to throw up again. But <laughs> just then, Kirk chimed in and said, I'll never forget, he said, I'll climb on top of that train. <laughs> exactly like that. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, I have to jump from one car to the next. He said, don't worry. I'll take a hold of your arm and I'll guide you over. <laughs> So, 
We got on top of the train. It starts to move. And, it, and again, it's not an exaggeration. It was the happiest I'd seen Kirk through the whole film. I, just a smile, the chin, the hair. And I was on top of the train with him. And he was helping me because I was a little nervous. Um, he says, keep your stance wide and stay low. That way you won't fall off the train. As I mentioned, there was a theme song. The theme song is They Don't Make Them Like They Used To, performed by Kenny Rogers. Uh, it was written by Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager, very prominent uh, songwriters. The song made it to number 53 on the country charts, but number 10 on the adult contemporary charts, and wound up being nominated for the best original song at the Golden Globes. That song, I, I'm surprised that it charted so well because I've never heard of that song, which I mean, doesn't really mean anything. I am not the keeper of the charts, but it will uh, never top Kenny Rogers' best movie theme song, which is Level Turn Us Around from Six Pack. <laughs> a little, little turn there. I just <laughs> thought we were going for a gamble. Oh, the gambler wasn't a movie. Was it? it was a TV, TV movie. movie, yeah. TV movie, close enough. Yeah. Um, as we always do, we try to wrap up with the Wait, box. Did, well, did you just say left turn because we were talking Six Pack and NASCAR? Yes, okay. that's exactly what I meant. I always like to look at the box office performance of the films. And as we mentioned, it opened on October 3rd of 1986. There were two other movies that opened that weekend, Children of a Lesser God uh, and Playing for Keeps. I take it back. There was another movie that opened that weekend. It was called Link with Elizabeth Shue and a monkey. Hey, I saw that movie with Elizabeth Shue in attendance. That must have been pretty awesome. That's about the highlight of that story. <laughs> um, but it opened October 3rd. It wound up finishing second at the box office. It made $4.5 million that weekend. Um, first was Crocodile Dundee, which was just an absolute juggernaut, and it would continue to be throughout the, throughout the fall. Uh, what I thought was interesting was that Ruthless People finished ninth at the box office. It was in its 15th week of release, still going strong. Um, by the second week, it, uh, Tough Guy slips to number five, and it was because there were three new movies that opened that weekend that finished behind, second, third, and fourth, of course, behind Crocodile Dundee. Those three movies were Peggy Sue Got Married, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and a movie that I'd never even heard of that was directed by Wes Craven. It's called Deadly Friend. You said you know that one? Oh, Mike, we, we have to go on Twitter and show you the gif of, of Kirstie Swanson throwing a baseball at Anne, Ramsey, Anne Ramsey's head. It's so good. Yes, it, I know Deadly Friend, and I actually... Saw that movie in a theater, not with Elizabeth Shue, though. <laughs> and so uh, Tough Guys goes on to make $21.5 million over the course of seven weeks. Only had a $10 million budget. So in a way, I guess it was somewhat successful. We always say you can, if you can make twice your budget, you more or less break even, right? Yeah. Especially back then, two times your budget probably because marketing costs would have been less. So they probably mm -hmm. did well. I think to wrap up. Tough guys, though, I have a great quote here again from Burt Lancaster, who uh, was talking about how he had not seen the movie yet because he was busy doing other things. And he said he didn't he doesn't go to the daily rushes or the screenings. And he says, plus, if I saw tough guys and didn't like it, I'd have to tell an awful lot of lies. What do you got there? Carriages. Carriages. I used to have a scotch at with made love, remember? Scotch is poison, Harry. Oh, not to me, it ain't. I'll bet you still eat red meat, don't you? Yep. Dairy products? Sometimes. Well, I eat nothing but roughage. Roughage? It's like Drano. Keeps the pipes clear. Have some. Oh, no, thanks. I don't want no Drano. I want scotch. 
I take 20 vitamin and mineral supplements a day. Really? Aerobics five times a week. <laughs> well, staying young is a serious business, Harry. You know, Belle, I begin to think that old is a dirty word. Well, nobody likes being old. I don't mind. We got one more movie in 1986, and it's got just another huge legendary movie star from back in the day. In this role, it's actually Paul Newman, and he's, as we mentioned, he's mentoring the young Tom Cruise. It came out two weeks after Tough Guys did, and it's called The Color of Money. I made money! I lost money! I got half of me that says I got a hold of the best thing that I ever seen, and half of me that says it just ain't worth it. Why'd you take a walk? 500 bucks says you choke right now. You used me! Yes, I did. I'm gonna leave! This is Fast Eddie Felson. Who the hell are you? 25 years ago, I won my share of medals. But it was over for me before it really got started. Hungry again. See some heavy legend action. I won his best game. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. I'm gonna beat him, you know. What makes you so sure? Touchstone Pictures presents. You smell what I smell? Smoke? Money. The color of money. Yes, if you didn't already know, this is a sequel to the movie The Hustler, which came out in 1961. Both The Hustler and Color Money were based on novels by the author Walter Tevis. Um, as I understand it, Paul Newman's lawyer had read two chapters of the manuscript for to color, of The Color of Money and became interested, and so Paul Newman immediately optioned the book. Um, Newman was a big fan of, of, of Raging Bull, and so he wanted to work with Martin Scorsese and convinced him to come on board. Uh, Scorsese mentioned that in an interview. Mr. Scorsese, why update the life of Eddie Felsen? Why, did you, why do a sequel? Um, I always found the character of Eddie Felsen really interesting, and it had a lot to do, I think, with a lot of characters in my other films. In a sense, he was uh, drawn and pulled by the same forces, in a way. Um, and uh, Paul Newman... Uh, called and was interested in doing a sequel to it and and I w really wanted to work with Paul Newman and we kind of used the Eddie Felsen character as a common ground to meet on to um, uh, do some really good work. I, 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 my feeling was that the Eddie Felsen character um, from The Hustler was a guy who needed more than one or two one or two lessons in life, you know, and so we pick him up here at the age of maybe 52 in which um, he's fallen into another kind of corruption. Because The Hustler was made by Fox, they had the first option for The Color of Money, and so the film was set up at that studio. But there was a regime change, and the film was dropped and subsequently picked up by Columbia Pictures, who put it into turnaround. Disney then stepped in. And this goes back to something we have talked about earlier, which was them you're talking about taking chances. Now they're going to start getting into the big time. They've done a bunch of goofy comedies, and now you've got the star power. It's Everybody's attached. Paul Newman, Martin Scorsese, and they're going to try to do something more serious, I guess. Walter Tevis, the, the novelist, he wrote a screenplay based on the book, but the filmmakers didn't, didn't like it, and so they brought in Richard Price, who himself was a novelist. He'd done a couple of screenplays based on his own books, and he was hired to write a, a whole new screenplay centered on Paul Newman's character, and where they were just going to use the title and nothing else from the book. Um, Richard Price, Martin Scorsese, Paul Newman, I thought was interesting. They, were, they would have meetings. They would go, they were have meetings in New York City and in Malibu where the three of them would just hammer out the idea of the script and coming to the grips with the character and how they were going to fit it all in. They said that uh, Jackie Gleason was potentially 
uh, going to reprise his role as Minnesota Fats. But every time they tried to work him into the script, they just couldn't do it. And I got a great quote from Paul Newman where he says, quote, We desperately wanted that character to return, but every time we put him in, it seemed like we were trying to glue an arm on a man and make it stick. Interesting analogy. Now, have you seen The Hustler? I saw The Hustler uh, many years ago. I don't really remember a whole lot about it. I mean, I know there was a lot of pool being played, and George C. Scott was kind Mm -hmm. of evil, but that's about I watched this. I watched The Hustler probably a week before watching Color of Money because I'd never seen it, and I wanted to just do some research, you know, to see how they compare to one another. And I would have to say that I found uh, one. First, I found The Hustler to be a very long movie, and obviously, it was made when people still had attention spans. But I also found the Miss- the Minnesota Fats character. To be not really, I don't want to say he wasn't necessary because it's the inner struggle of Paul Newman playing him, but I had had this, you know, grandiose vision of Minnesota Fats, hearing the name, and and it's Jackie Gleason, you know, mm-hmm. big star. He really wasn't that pivotal to the plot, other than the man versus self aspect of the story yeah and i could see why i mean it made sense i mean even what jackie gleason himself said he wasn't really impressed with the scripts that they gave him and i wonder if it was just a situation where they're like oh we got to put him in because it's a sequel but i give the, this, the filmmakers credit for for based, for saying you know what we don't need him and I, i'm sure the audiences might have been expecting him but good on them um Tom Cruise, on the other hand, was a, a, just a rising star. I, I saw this, the same interview with Tom's, with Martin Scorsese where he mentions, you know, Top Gun wasn't out at the time that he was cast. They cast him on the strength of Risky Business, you know, which also came out the same year as All the Right Moves. You know, before that, he had just done the ensemble movies like The Outsiders mm-hmm. and, and Taps. Um, but, yeah, as we mentioned, Top Gun came out in May and Color of Money came out in October. So mm-hmm. that Top Gun, I think you said, it, well, we'll hear, we'll hear more about uh, Top yeah. Gun when we discuss the highest grossing movies of 1986. But And he had just done Legend in 1985 with Ridley Scott. I, again, I, I remember that movie as a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it until a few years ago. Never seen it. It's... It's one that I mean I saw it on the big screen. I saw it at the the Arrow Theater here in Santa Monica, and it's I know there's a lot of issues with the the score. There's like two different scores, and some of the film fans prefer one and not the other. You know, uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I said that right. Um, she only had a, a very few credits. She played Al Pacino's sister in Scarface, and she also played Mussolini's daughter in the TV miniseries about Mussolini, which starred George C. Scott from The Hustler. He was he played Mussolini in that. Um, the, the film was originally set up to be released at Christmas, but Disney pushed up the release to October because they were really confident that it would be a hit. So as we go into the discussion of the film, I mean, were, were they right in doing that? Was the good movie good enough? <laughs> I think they were not just based, based on the strength of the movie, but you move it up you know, a little bit earlier. That way your Top Gun is still fresh. Because I'm sure that played in theaters for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. So you're coming off of Top Gun. You get the Tom Cruise fans. Because I was going to go back and watch the trailer for this. I'm sure he was heavily promoted. Especially in TV, whatever TV or print ads that there were at the time. Because mm-hmm. of the success of Top Gun. Sure. Um, and I think it's still close enough to the award season that you're going to get the attention anyway. Yeah. 
but yeah, the, the film itself, I'm, I mean, spoiler for my, my, uh, rating at the end. I, I just absolutely loved it. I, you know, there's a, the great, op- there's a great opening scene and it, it just perfectly sets up each of the characters and even the director's visual flourishes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that just, just goes over the moon about Scorsese. I think mm-hmm. he's a very fine filmmaker. I love a good visual style and it's definitely set up. In that opening scene, the the, the uh, DP is a guy named Michael Bauhaus who worked with Scorsese throughout most of the late part of the 80s. He did After Hours and Goodfellas and Last Temptation of Christ. And then you come out of that great opening scene into the next scene, which is a, a, a dinner. All three leads are having dinner. And just the acting on display, they really kind of set set the, the story in motion. There's some piece of work. Some piece of work. You're also a natural character. I've been telling her that. You know, I got natural character. No, that's not what I said, kid. I said, you are a natural character. You're an incredible flake. But that's a gift. See, guys spend half their lives trying to invent something like that. You walk into a pool room with that go, 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 the guys will be killing each other trying to get to you. You got that. But I'll tell you something, kiddo. You couldn't find big time if you had a road map. Pool excellence is not about excellent pool. It's about becoming someone. Yeah. Yeah. Like what? A student. You gotta be a student of human moves. See, all the greats that I know of to a man were students of human moves. Students of human moves. That's my area of excellence. And leading the way is Paul Newman. I mean, he's an absolute standout. This is a, a showcase role for him. You know, he can, he's, he's mentor, like I said. He can teach the young guy, but he can also learn a lot from him. I mean, are you, I mean we could talk about his, his career. I mean, he's been around, at that point, he'd been acting for a good 30 years or so in Hollywood. You said you weren't overly familiar with his work or you hadn't seen too many of his films? At, at the time that I saw this, when it first came out, no, I probably, again, probably knew who Paul Newman was because he made salad dressing and popcorn. This is true. But it, movies like The Hustler or uh, Cool Hand Luke, or I'm trying to think of other popular, HUD, uh, The Verdict. Yeah, those are not movies that 12-year-old me is watching. <laughs> I know. Just out of curiosity, I looked it up today. Um, I'd seen nine Paul Newman films, and I don't know exactly how many of them. I didn't see them any when I was a kid. Most of them, like like The Hustler, like Cool Hand Luke, I saw as an adult. And what was funny was the the, the three movies that I really, really associate with him that are the, my favorite were all made by the same director, George Roy Hill. And that's Butch Cassidy and the mm-hmm. Sundance Kid, which is a classic. Uh, the Sting, you know, one best picture. And then I'm a hockey fan, so I love Slapshot. And and he is absolutely fantastic in that movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, it just I feel like this is a showcase for him you know i mean i know that tom cruise was the hot character but it seems like paul newman is in most of the marketing materials the poster he's more prominently seen i figure his acting that's kind of reason i like this movie so much is that i figure his acting is just so (laughs) for lack of a better word i'll just say it's really good i mean there's some of these scenes it's his delivery and just his style is great there's a scene where they're they're he's in the car with with Carmen and he's kind of describing his his his, his ideals and he talks about um, money one being twice as sweet as money earned. He's very understated in this film, which I find you know works in the film and especially 
given that it's a Disney film, he's a little less animated than he was in his other Disney film, Cars. Cars, yes, that's funny. No, no, I he like I said, he's he's great. And I even I I was not expecting much from from Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I thought maybe Did it was just Did you not kind of, see Robin Hood Prince of Thieves? Well, I I mean I was I knew her from the Abyss, yeah. I guess. I wasn't sure if she was just gonna be the girlfriend and I give her credit, I was just absolutely mm-hmm. blown away. I, I, I it makes me want to see more of her work. Um, you know, she she did a good part as far as she was playing the the voice of reason. You know, mm-hmm. she's the conscious. It kind of gets caught in the middle, and um, you know, to her credit, I think, like I said, the rest of her career, she goes on to just choose more. I don't know, more roles that weren't very exploitative. You know, you always worry about when it comes to actresses, they just get chewed up and spit out by the Hollywood system. She ends up marrying the the um, director of a movie that she did called The January Man, and I think she started a family, and then she just kind of chose her roles very sporadically mm-hmm. and. You know, kind of faded away. I think she's probably still doing... I think she still does television occasionally. And then, of course, there's Tom Cruise. I mean, who... You can't deny the star power, the charisma that he has. He, I think he's great in this movie because he just plays such a perfect, cocky, arrogant kid. Like, you you wonder if the target audience... You know, you got people that are going to be younger seeing this movie and people that are older seeing this movie. And I wonder if the older folks can relate to Paul Newman, the younger folks can mm-hmm. relate to Tom Cruise... I think I told you before, I am not a huge Tom Cruise fan, and this Tom Cruise is my least favorite Tom Cruise. Really? Like I, going back to Top Gun, it's a movie that I don't get the appeal of. I cannot watch the movie. I'm not interested in the sequel. I can appreciate you know, the acting talent of Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards and, and Meg Ryan. And, and in this movie, obviously, like you said, the acting is stellar but tom cruise that it's just the character that he's portraying just kills it for me like i don't want to watch him but he plays that character so but well he, he does he does and i can understand why he became a huge star yeah right? where you're like you're waiting for him to sort of get his comeuppance yeah. you know but at the same time like what i thought was funny was you could tell that it's it's set up to be like oh this dumb kid he's probably not listening but no he's listening and he's paying attention and when he can kind of pull some tricks on Paul Newman that he learns from him and you know and he even dresses like him toward the end of the movie but there's that great you know that there's what makes the movie kind of interesting to me too is that there's not some great finale climax you know the final scene is great because it's it's just the two of them acting back and forth and you're setting you kind of the, the simmering tensions and you're going to see what happens next you got brass man I'll give you that. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. Let's find out. I'm asking you. I ain't got a leg to stand on, but I'm asking you. Shut up! Don't do that, kid. I call the shots. I do what I want to do. Don't do it. I don't have that many games left in me. God, you used us! You used me! Yes, I did. But you're in Atlantic City now with the big boys. You're not back there in the stock room playing around with baby dolls. Think about it. It's a wash. About all that other stuff, I don't take much pride in that. It's even, but it ain't settled. Let's settle it. Why should I? How long do you want me to fry, huh? Five years, ten years? You want to play kick the dog for the rest of your life? Come on. Let's clean it up. Well, I can say that this kid, I guess, wasn't listening or paying attention because that whole climax of the film went right over my head. Uh I had to research it and be like, oh, okay, I get it now. But it's funny, too, that you mentioned how you liked there's really not an ending. Yeah. Siskel and Ebert 
gave this movie thumbs down, which I found kind of shocking. It's the only, I believe, the only Scorsese film that Roger Ebert did not like. And part of their problem with the movie was there is no ending. They want to yeah. see, you know, it's it's kind of like Big Lebowski, how you never see the bowling match between <laughs> Jesus and and everyone else. But it's... But I, I, that's what I liked about it because it's always nice when the when the movie ends and then you have to turn if you're if you're watching with somebody and you're just like okay what happens next I mean did does, does Eddie go to the Bahamas with his girlfriend is there an actual rematch like I, I like that open ended aspect of it where you wonder like what is going to happen next that leads me to another question that I have for you which is could you make a sequel to this movie but instead have Tom Cruise's Vince character play the older mentor. And then have a young, whoever the young hotshot actor of today is being the young guy. I'll twist it around on you. What if you made the movie with the older Tom Cruise, but instead of him teaching a younger kid, it's a younger kid teaching him how to play video games and be a going into an e-sports league. Don't make that movie. Hollywood. That's a horrible idea. Uh, I don't think my eyes are just oh god. <laughs> because the whole point in, the, in in this movie, when you first see him, he's playing a video game, and in that dinner scene, he talks to to Paul Newman about how oh he's got great hand eye coordination and it'll help him go to the military mm-hmm. academy because of you know video games. I don't know. Um, we'll uh, we'll wrap up and go into what I talk about with the touch don't touch. Same thing, nudity and well, this one has a lot of foul language. Like this mm-hmm. movie kind of earns its R rating in that regard. But there's some slight nudity from Mary, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. I'm just going to say that as many times as I can and see if I can not fumble through it. Um, it can be my tumble. But this is one of those ones where you, I think it actually serves the, the movie, right? Because it kind of leads to that mm. tension that, that, that Paul Newman has with that character as if she's trying to be seductive and he's, mm. he's not buying into it. Um, I'll start off with the with, on the film scale of 1 to 10. I give it a solid 8. I thought it was a, you know, a compelling drama that seems real without being life-threatening. And I thought that was refreshing. It's too easy to just have them, like, he has to do this or his, or his life depends on it. No, not necessarily. I mean, it's just his likelihood or his livelihood, not his life. Um, they, I said the acting is fantastic, and that made it worth watching for me. 8 out of 10. This is where I don't like rating systems because if I base – the scale, the number on the quality of the film, this is easily a seven or eight on the film. As far as my enjoyment and would I ever watch this movie again? That brings us down to like probably a five just because I, again, it's partly Tom Cruise's fault. I will blame him. And also I just watching this and the hustler back to back kind of, you know, a week apart. I just, neither one of them really jumped out. I mean, they're good, but they're not movies that I want to watch again. Yeah. I'm not sure how, how quickly I would go watch it again, but I just, I remember being thoroughly entertained while I was watching it. Um, did you see the, uh, no camera tricks in this, in this film, like all of the shots, pool, the pool shots were done. I think there was one shot that was a, like a jump shot that Tom Cruise's character does. There was a technical director named Mike Siegel and he's the one that does all the shots. And I, I thought I heard, I could be wrong, but I thought I heard that he did some of the shots for the hustler as well too. I don't know. Uh, I thought it was interesting was life magazine that did a cover story on the film. And in order to promote it, they released two separate covers, one with Paul Newman, right side up and Tom Cruise upside down and then vice versa. An executive from Life Magazine claimed that it would prove who was the hottest actor of the two and when it was all said and done, the issues with Tom Cruise right side up actually outsold the Paul Newman ones by a margin of 55% to 45%. Uh, Robbie Robertson of the band, I mean he 
was the Martin Scorsese had directed the last waltz. So they have a long standing relationship. He was in charge of the music and performed the score for the film. But interestingly enough, his first solo album has, was in, was in, in progress and it had not yet been released. So the record label would not let him sing on any of the songs for the soundtrack. He just contributed instrumental tracks to the score instead. Um, the theme song, this movie has a theme song as well. It's in the way that you use it by Eric Clapton, which was co-written by Robbie Robertson. Very popular hit single. I remember that a lot from when I was a kid. I, I think I, I always get that confused with the um, what's the one that he did that was a beer commercial. Um, it was there was another Eric Clapton mm-hmm. song that uh, I, uh, I I don't know. I would have probably after said midnight. It. I think okay. it was I think it was after midnight. Um, but the song was it was a, it was a popular hit. It reached number one on the mainstream rock charts. So we we talk about the charts on our other podcast that Chad does with, with me. Wonder why? And I noticed that uh, it didn't. This song didn't chart on the on the Hot 100, but number one on the mainstream rock chart. It was nominated for the MTV Video Music Award for Best Video from a Film, and it lost to Wild Wild Life of the Talking Heads, which was in the movie True Stories. Uh, I couldn't help but notice because I'm a nerd like this. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning of Tough Guys is the first time you see the credits says Touchstone Pictures rather than Touchstone Films. All of the other ones said Touchstone Films. So I thought, oh, this is it. Now we're going to be in Touchstone Pictures. No, for some reason, Color of Money says Touchstone Films. It goes back. Mm. And as we're going to see when we go in 1987, I think it switches to mm. Touchstone Pictures permanently. Well, I'm going to throw in real quick a little bit of trivia. I don't know if you saw this because we were speaking video games in the remake. The video game Doom got its name from this film where uh tom cruise has a pool cue and he goes to the 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 pool hall and the guy says what's in the case and he just says doom right yeah and apparently the creators of the game were working on the uh, developing the game at the time and hey you know inspiration comes from the strangest places yeah and i always like i talked about it on some of our previous episodes but it's always interesting to see if any of us have a connection with these movies did we see anybody do we know anybody you know um i guess i mentioned it in tough guys but dana carvey's in that there was one time i don't know if you were you with us we went and saw a 25th anniversary screening of wayne's world or 20th anniversary screening of wayne's world and dana carvey Mm -hmm. was there as close as i've ever Mm -hmm. been to him but i have been in the same room as tom cruise Mm -hmm. and i worked in 2004 i worked on the espy awards and Jamie Foxx was the host, and he and Tom Cruise had just done, or Collateral was about to come out, and Tom Cruise was there to present an award to um, Pat Tillman, mm. who, uh, who had the football player who had gone over to was Afghanistan or Iraq and had mm. passed away, was killed, and so he gave an award to their family. But what was interesting was, you know, this is a live award show broadcast. They had Tom Cruise do his part first before the rest of the show so that he could just film his part and leave. And so our job was to get all the athletes from the hotel and get them into the limos and go to the award show. And after we'd gotten all the athletes there, we got to go. And so we were huddled huddled backstage and watching people come and go. And so they brought Tom Cruise out. He went up on stage. He He did his spiel for Pat Tillman. And then he came backstage where we were all standing. And... If he hadn't stopped, I wouldn't have seen him because that's how short he is. And I could see him, you know, over a few people. And Jamie Foxx is backstage, and he stops and he sees Jamie Foxx and he gives him a big hug. And so that was one. Of, I mean, I had been in LA less than a year at that point, and that's one of those moments where you can't help but notice I'm in the same room. It just he was this biggest star on the planet. Um, as we like to do on this show, this is just my thing. I was curious to see if if there's any kind of a James Bond connection with either of the movies that we discussed, and 
I couldn't find anything directly, but I did see something that was sort of indirectly, and I'm going to go with it. Chad, are you familiar with the movie Road to Perdition? It's probably my second favorite Paul Newman film. Really? Okay. Just don't ask me to quote anything from the movie because it's been a while since I've seen it. But yeah. oh, okay, but the movie is the movie came out, I think, 2002, and Paul Newman kind of got this sort of a little bit of a resurgence, and he's got some award nominations and, for that. But it's a movie all about fathers and sons. And Tom Hanks, it's all about Tom Hanks' son is the witness to a killing. And so him and Tom Hanks and his son have to go on the road and try to evade the hitman played by Jude Law. But in the movie, Tom Hanks works for Paul Newman. And, and Paul Newman treats him like a son. But at the same time, Paul Newman has a son in the movie. And his son resents Tom Hanks because of the, he gets all the love that he's not getting himself from his own father. Do you remember who plays Paul Newman's son in Road to Perdition? Mary Elizabeth Bastard Antonio. Close, close. Uh, his son's played by Daniel Craig. So that's as close as I could get with the James Bond. You know, I mean, my, when it comes to my two great loves of cinema, it's James Bond and Alfred Hitchcock. And I had no, I had no inkling to think that there was going to be Alfred Hitchcock connections. But wouldn't you know it, Paul Newman was the star of Torn Curtain. So I was thinking he might be one of the few people that's ever starred in a Touchstone picture and also an Alfred Hitchcock picture. But I would be wrong. <laughs> Spoiler for future episodes. Kind of look out for that. All right. Um, the box office, just like uh, Tough Guys. It opens in October 17th, and it finishes number two behind Crocodile Dundee. It's just, I don't know. It's its a thing. You just couldn't stop the Paul Hogan at that time. Color of Money makes $6.3 million, and nothing really of note opened the same weekend. I mean, Sid and Nancy was released, but I say that it was only released in two theaters. So there wasn't a whole lot. It seemed like it was they, they left October open. No none of their studios were even bothering because it Color of Money stays number two for the first five weeks of its release and it just still cannot top Crocodile Dundee. In the sixth week of its release it slides all the way to number five, and that was when uh, American Tail came out mm-hmm. and finished ahead of it. Something called Firewalker? I don't know that one. Chuck you, Norris. Mike, Mike, we have to sit down after this recording in a few days because it's getting late but firewalker chuck norris lewis gossett jr canon films canon films yeah. our great inspirations mcgolan golan globus i i remember watching it a lot as a kid i couldn't tell you anything about the movie now yeah i don't i don't know that one uh the film ends up finishing in the top 10 in its first nine weeks of its release and it goes on to make 52 Point three million dollars on a fourteen million dollar budget. Uh, you know, it goes on to finish twelfth in the in the uh, end of yeah. the nineteen eighty six the highest grossing films. I, I was incredibly impressed with that. I, you know, I mean, the movie was good. I just didn't realize it was that good. As that really resonated with the fans. Um, from an awards consideration standpoint, Paul Newman. You know, in nineteen eighty five. The year before, he had won the honorary Oscar because he had gotten he had six prior nominations for Best Actor, but had never won. He got nominated for The Hustler, matter of fact, and then he wins Best Actor for The Color Money. You know, I know it's kind of like a makeup award, but at the same time, having watched it, I really think he deserved it. It wasn't just some sort of lifetime achievement award. Yeah, Paul Newman was really good in this film, and I'm trying to think of who else was who who he was up against at the Academy Awards. I know Bob Hoskins had won the Golden Globe for Mona Lisa. Not for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Shocking. But I think Paul Newman, it, it probably was a makeup Oscar, but it was justified. It's yeah. not as, 
egregious as some of the ones we've seen in recent years. Yeah, and it's funny. We always joke about the Golden Globes being, you know, just star admirers. And, and just, but yet Bob Huskins wins the Golden Globe. I thought Paul Newman would have won the Golden Globe instead. Um, from an Oscar standpoint, uh, The Color of Money also gets nominated for Best Art Direction, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. It loses to uh, A Room with a View. And then Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, there she is again. She gets nominated for Best Supporting Actress and loses to Diane Weist from uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. But Paul Newman did win the Best Actor Award from the National Board of Review. Well, that's all that matters. I mean, that's it's a national board. It's not just an academy. It's I, I don't know where I'm going with this. Please jump in here. So now we're done with 1986. Touchstone ends up releasing five films. Three of them finish in the top 12. And I know it, it almost feels like they've justified their existence at this point because I know they wanted to be taken more seriously as a studio when they created Touchstone. And yet here we are in the first three years, two of those three years, they wind up with a film that finished in the top 10 at the year in box office. Um, Chad, I think you've got the top 10 movies of 1986 at the box office for us. I do indeed. And what shocks me again is the lack of sequels. Okay. There are a couple in the top 10. I will say real quick, I totally forgot. The Color of Money finishes 12 and Down and Out in Beverly Hills finishes 11. Yes. And then we go into the top 10. Number 10 is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is the highest grossing John Hughes movie for the year. Uh, everything else seems to fall in that, you know, in the 20s range. Number nine, Ruthless People. Number eight, and this one shocked me. And this is a movie that, again, I saw as a kid, and I need to go back and rewatch to see how it holds up. The Golden Child. Oh, wow. I mean, this is Eddie Murphy coming off of uh, Beverly Hills Cop. So this, I'm, I'm going to only assume that people went to see that because of Eddie Murphy. He's box office yeah. gold at yeah. this point, right? And he's, is he still on SNL? Oh, no. He oh, like, did like one year, right? Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, number seven is Aliens, which... Much like Top Gun, movie that I don't get the appeal, but that's just me. Oh, it's better than the first one. Number six, I was surprised this one charted as high as it did. I know it's a classic, a favorite of yours, the Rodney Danger film, Back to School. I was honestly surprised that that was top ten, because I love that movie. But it was like, I, sometimes you, you, you always wonder, am I the only mm -hmm. one? And yet, man, apparently everybody else did too. And then we have our sequels. Number five is Star Trek Four. Number four is Karate Kid 2. Uh, number three, your Oscar winner for... 1986 Best Picture, Platoon, mm -hmm. which I'm kind of surprised that that actually finished as high as it did. But Yeah, we'll be hearing yeah. a lot about Platoon in our next episode. Yeah. And then Crocodile Dundee, which you, like you mentioned, kept all the films out of the top yeah. spot, uh, came in at number two with $174 million, and then with $2 million more at 176 was Top Gun. I was going to say, it must have been, must have been close because it just seemed like Crocodile Dundee was number one yeah. the second half of that year. But I guess it was maybe because Top Gun wasn't up against Touchstone Pictures. I didn't notice it as much. Yeah, maybe. And I mean, what's interesting is their opening weekends, Crocodile Dundee made $8.038 million. Top Gun made 8193 Like, they were very close. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, some other standouts. Like, like I said, I like to go through the charts and see... Movies that I consider to be classics to see where they ended up. Speaking of John Hughes, Pretty in Pink came in at 22 with 40 million. At number 36, you want to talk about a movie that could you remake this today? Well, no chance at all on this one. It's the classic C. Thomas Howell movie, Soul Man. <laughs> I know you love that movie. Uh, made $27 million. I just, yeah. And then 41 is Iron Eagle. 43 was Tough Guys uh, with 21 million. Oh, Howard the Duck came in only $16 million. It's, uh, 
about 17 million more than it probably should have made. And then my biggest shocker is Big Trouble in Little China at number 71. Yeah, I mean, it was just, they didn't mm. understand it. The concept, it was, they thought it was, it was a, you didn't realize it was a comedy? I mean, it's, yeah, they I think probably, it, thought it was an action movie and just avoided it? And then I will say, real quick, Space Camp came in at 74 with $9 million, And I think we discussed on the previous episode how that movie had been impacted by the Challenger explosion right before it came out. I think mm. that probably hindered. And it finished one spot ahead of Deadly Friend. Deadly Friend. Okay. Okay. And then, well, as we always like to do on the show as well, I like to point out... What was Walt Disney Pictures doing around the same time frame? I think we mentioned in the previous episode, Fire the Navigator and Great Mouse Detective had come out in the first half. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the second half of 1986. Walt Disney Pictures did not release any original films in that time. They only did two reissues. They did Song of the South, which was released on November 21st. Wait, wait, wait. Are you, are you telling me that in 1986, Walt Disney Pictures re-released Song of the South? Yes. Can I do my Uncle Remus impersonation? I'm going to say no. <laughs> We're going to just keep moving there. Um, the film ran in theaters for one month, and it made $17.6 million. And then on December 19th, they did a reissue of Lady and the Tramp, which is about to be remade for our friends over at Disney+. Plus. It's live uh, action. Yes. And that made $31 million in one month. What I thought was interesting is there was no overlap. Song of the South ran for one month, and then the week it left theaters was the same week Lady and the Tramp mm. did uh, appeared. I wonder if it was one of those, they want it back in the Disney vault, just give it to you for a month. But that was sort of their thing at the time. And uh, there's 1986. I was going to ask you. We are now, we have reached nine films in the Touchstone canon from the first three years of their release. And as we're going to point out, in 1987 is when Touchstone really hits their stride. They released nine films in that year Mm -hmm. alone. So I'll ask you as we wrap up 1986, Chad, and as we go over the first three years of Touchstone, I was going to say, what is your favorite movie of Touchstone has put out of those first nine and your least favorite? My favorite would be Ruthless People. I just think it was really good. I you know, a lot funnier than I expected and just great comedic timing uh, all around from the acting and the editing um, there. And my least favorite, I know this one's going to hurt you, but it's my science project. I was afraid you're going to say that. And you know, what's so funny is we are both big fans of, of Tom and Jim's top five. And they always joke whenever they have a list and then they both have the same movie on their list. And yeah, Ruthless People is my favorite movie as well. I, I, that's just the one that I, thoroughly enjoyed from beginning to end i was laughing more than i was expecting to laugh um you know i mean offbeat was charming splash was great but ruthless people and then of course my least favorite is baby secret <laughs> of the lost legend i cannot bring myself to even oh. think about that movie again Macamba Patamo. <laughs> potatoes i don't know <laughs> okay i'll ask you this since we had the same number one what was your biggest surprise i mean of those nine movies of those nine movies which one was I guess looking at them on paper, would you have said exceeded your expectation or maybe just uh, not wasn't what you were expecting? I in that regard, I would in say a positive sense. Well, I would say the color of money. Like I was, re- I really went into that thinking, oh, okay, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be stylish. It's going to have some good acting. I was not expecting it to be that moving, that compelling for me. I, I, I thought it was just going to be a fine film. That one was, was a pleasant surprise, you know. And I think from the, on the other standpoint, and I don't like to dwell on the negative, but I thought, I thought Down and Out in Beverly Hills was going to be a little funnier. Mm. I, when you, whenever I kept hearing about it being this uproarious comedy and it was a box office smash and it had been number one, it got, you know, award nominations 
I really thought it was going to be a little funnier. And I, but then again, I wasn't overly familiar with Paul Mazursky's work, and I know he's probably not just an, he doesn't go for broad uh, humor in that regard. Why did you have something that was? Uh, what were you pleasantly surprised by or well, disappointed by? Well, I, I would say Offbeat is my surprise because I yeah. didn't even know the movie existed before this podcast started. And real quick, speaking of Paul Mazursky, I forgot to mention on the last episode, he developed the TV show The Monkees. Okay. Uh-huh. Pointless reference that I just wanted to work in there. So what's coming up on the next episode? As we mentioned, 1986 has been wrapped up and we go into 1987 next year. Touchstone releases nine different films, all of them comedies. We have an action comedy, we have a comedy drama, but they're all comedies. So we're going to focus on just three of them. We're going to look at the first half of 1987, which features the return of three comedic talents who starred in Touchstone Pictures in 1986, and also one comedic talent that was a very bizarre phenomenon, if you can remember the late 1980s. For my friend Chad Smart, he's, you can find him on Twitter, at Chad Smart. My name is Mike DeKalb. I'm on Twitter as well, at Mike DeKalb. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you. Good night.